Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1. And if you're new with us, welcome. We just wanted to uh, kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. We have begun a study in Paul's letter to the Philippians, looking at its theme of joy topically. So we've looked at every place where joy appears, isolated that passage, studied it, found out what the context was, and we're making those our main points. So, so far we've looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Then we looked at joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And then we have been the last couple weeks, we'll finish today on that third main point, joy of faith. Let's look at verse 25. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And so here in verse 25, Paul mentions joy again, but this time he connects it to faith. And by talking about the joy of faith, Paul is talking about the joy that comes from having faith, or it also would include the joy that comes from exercising faith. As we said last time, faith is a very important subject in the Bible. In fact, it's so important it's talked about in every book from Genesis through Revelation. So needless to say, uh, the subject of faith is not only an important subject, it's a critical subject. Why do I say that? I say it because everything God has for us in the way of power to live for him and blessings that flow from him come to us as a gift that has to be received by faith if it's going to benefit us. Even as Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So with that in mind, it's critical that we understand what biblical faith is uh, all about if we're going to, going to understand the joy that is associated with it. So that's what we've tried to do. Uh, last week, we started looking at the various types of faith in the Bible. Uh, there are four main types. There might be some others. These are the ones I, I thought of. I think this is pretty much the extent of it in the New Testament. But uh, there are four types of faith in the Bible that the Bible talks about. There is the shield of faith, then the gift of faith, then saving faith, and then finally practical faith. Now last week we looked at the shield of faith, and that brings us to the second kind of faith on our list, the gift of faith. Now, I'm only bringing this up because I want to be thorough with the subject, all right? But um, maybe some of you have never really studied the gift of faith. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. The gift of faith is a supernatural infusion of faith given to the Christian by the Holy Spirit for the moment or the circumstance. And by that I mean it suddenly comes upon you, this faith, this gift of faith, and causes you to believe without a doubt that God's going to work in some way, work a miracle, bring about a healing, provide a need, or work in some other way that the situation calls for, whatever that situation is. But guys, understand, it's a special, temporary, supernatural gift of faith given to you by the Holy Spirit that allows you to be a channel that God might use in whatever way he desires to use you. Understand the gift of faith is not a reservoir of faith. Wouldn't that be great? 
it's not a reservoir of faith that is with you always that you can, you know, dip into anytime you want. One example of this gift in operation is found in Acts chapter 3. You can turn there. I'll just paraphrase it. In Acts 3, verses 1 to 11, Peter and John are going into the temple at the third hour of the day uh, to pray. And as they were walking into the temple, they were going to enter by the beautiful gate of the temple. And there was a guy that had been lame for many, many years sitting there begging alms. And alms was a gift of money to the poor. And these folks back then had no social services. Uh, so they depended entirely, if they couldn't work, if they were crippled, they depended entirely on the generosity of others. So Peter and John are walking into the temple for prayer. Peter sees this guy sitting there begging for alms. And so Peter, the, the Holy Spirit, we, we know this from the stories that unfolds. The Holy Spirit gives to Peter a gift of faith to heal this guy. And so Peter says, look at me. And the guy looks up, putting his hand out, expecting to get some money. And Peter said, look, silver and gold I don't have. But such as I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Grabs the guy, pulls him to his feet. The guy stands for maybe the first time in his life. He starts walking. Then he starts jogging. And then he's no doubt peeling around the temple area, leaping and praising and, and, and you know, walking, leaping, and praising God. This creates quite a stir, as you can imagine. Everyone knows who this guy is. He's been sitting there for years. And so a crowd gathers, and they want, and they're looking at this guy grabbing onto Peter, and they think, well, this guy worked a miracle. And Peter says, whoa, 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 don't look at me. As if through some holiness on my part, this man stands before you whole. He said in verse 16, it was through faith in his name, Jesus Christ, uh, that has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Guys, this beggar didn't know Jesus and therefore didn't have his own faith in Christ. No, this was a gift of faith that was given to Peter by the Holy Spirit for that moment, for God to heal this crippled man. My pastor tells uh, this story that happened to him years ago. You can read about it. Uh, in the book Living Water, or in our uh, book of the quarter, the reproduces, it's also listed. How that one Sunday after a service, uh, a family came wheeling their grandfather, who was in a wheelchair, down to the front of the church so Chuck could pray for him. So they wheel him up there, and Chuck sees him, so Chuck lays his hands on him, and he prays for God to heal him. And then he grabs him by the arm, stands him to his feet, and the guy starts walking, and then he starts jogging and doing laps around the church. His family is going nuts <laughs> with excitement. And they said, he's got a cold. All we wanted you to do was pray for his cold. <laughs> Don't limit God, right? So, he, so they leave. The guy's healed. The next week after church, another family, I'm sure they didn't know anything about what happened the week before, another family wheels their mom in a wheelchair to the front of the church for Chuck to pray over her. Chuck prays over her, and then the family wheels her back 
and then out of the church. Chuck's son, Chuck Jr., was standing there, who had been at the previous service, and said, Dad, why didn't you pick her up and, and, and heal her? And she said, Son, I, I, God didn't give me the faith. It was a gift of faith that God gave Chuck for that a particular moment. Uh, very important that we understand it. Look, I've experienced this gift in my own life, not in such a dramatic way as Chuck did. And maybe you have too, where you're praying about something or you're praying for someone, whether they need a healing or you're praying for their salvation. And all of a sudden, this faith comes on you. It just overwhelms you and you are absolutely sure God's going to work. He's going to heal. This guy, they're they're going to get healed. Or they're going to get saved. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. It just comes on you. And, and it's just there. And it's a gift of faith. Because God wants to use you in some way. So, sometimes God will give the person the gift of faith who needs to be healed. Sometimes, like in this story with Peter, God gave Peter the gift of faith to be used to heal this guy. So God works in different ways. But um, it's very important that we understand that. Again, this is a temporary gift of faith given to us by the Holy Spirit when God wants to do a special work. And yeah, often it's connected to a miracle or a healing, but it could be other things. And when God finishes working, and whatever it is he was working, the gift of faith, you know, comes to an end. Because again, it's not a reservoir you always have with you once God gives it to you. It's for the moment, for the circumstance, right? All right, well, that brings us to the third kind of faith on our list, and that's saving faith. Saving faith. We touched on this a couple weeks ago, so let me revisit it, though. Saving faith is the faith that's described in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't have to turn to it. You all know it. Where Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Be careful. There's a lot of folks that try to say, well, the gift is the faith. No, the gift is the salvation. And if you get that wrong, and a lot of people have because of their theology demands that that interpretation stand as it is, no. The gift of God is salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Saving faith is exercised once in our lives. Now, not everybody agrees with that. I believe with all my heart, saving faith is exercised once in a person's life because they only get saved once. Again, talking about my pastor, Pastor Chuck grew up in a denomination where they believed you could use, lose your salvation for any transgression. So every week, Chuck said, I had to hurry to church to get saved again. Because God forbid I should die before I got saved again. He lived in it with that fear. Until he started to really study the Bible and realize that, no, saving faith is exercised once because if you're truly saved, this is the thing. If you're truly saved, you're saved forever. Are you truly saved? Well, how do you know? You look for fruit. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Is your life changing? 
No, 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 you're not perfect. None of us are going to be this side of glory. But I've seen so many people who profess faith in Christ, their lives haven't changed a bit. Still living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, still ripping off people, still, you know, they're in their company, they're, they're doing unscrupulous things. Look, how can you tell me you're a Christian and have been a Christian for years and your life hasn't changed it at all? Where's the fruit, right? I believe in eternal security. I believe once saved, always saved if you're really saved. That's where the Bible says, make sure you examine yourself to make sure that you're really in the faith. So a lot of people are going to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Into everlasting fires prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. Now listen, very important. And we've talked about this numerous times in the past. I'm not going to belabor it. If you want, I can tell you where you can go. The last time we talked on this subject, we spent a lot of time on it. About three months ago as we finished John's Gospel, I can direct you to that study. But let me just kind of sum that up. We're talking about saving faith. Saving faith isn't just head knowledge. It's believing in Jesus to the point of commitment. Here's the problem. You have so many people in, who go to churches, who go to church, maybe they have for most of their life. But they've really never made a commitment to Christ. They believe in who he is. They've never doubted that he's the son of God, came down and died for our sins and rose again the third day from the dead. They've just never made a commitment to him. In that regard, it's like they're perpetually dating christ jesus doesn't want for you to be dating him he's looking for a relationship based on a long-term commitment in other words he wants to marry you that's what salvation is he's proposing marriage that's why the bible says if you've accepted christ he's your bridegroom you're the bride of christ and the reason is because marriage implies a commitment i could think marriage is the greatest institution god ever created but if I don't commit my life to somebody, as I did my wife 45 years ago, if you don't commit your life to someone in marriage, you've never entered into it. You might think it's the greatest institution in the world, but you've never entered into marriage until you make that commitment. There's a lot of folks that think Jesus is the greatest person that's ever lived. But they've never made a commitment to him, therefore they do not have a relationship with him that is real and will save them from eternal judgment. Again, many churchgoers are satisfied with a casual relationship with Jesus. They love him on some level. They're fond of him, as Jesus said to Peter. Do you love me? Do you agape me? I'm fond of you. A lot of folks are fond of Jesus. He wants you to be in love with him to the point of committing your life to him. He wants your commitment to, uh, to him to be one that you will serve him and uh, stay loyal to him. And, uh, and, 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 and he alone is your, is your first love. He's not competing with you in your life for other loves. He wants you to commit your life to him for better or for worse. No matter what life brings your way, you're going to stay loyal to Jesus for the rest of your life. Guys, this is the nature, nature of saving faith. 
not simple head knowledge where a person believes some facts about Jesus. Good facts. Look, as most of you know, my background was a Roman Catholic before I got saved. I was born into the Catholic Church. I was baptized in the Catholic Church, made my first Holy Communion in the Catholic Church, confirmation in fourth grade, got married in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic grade school. My wife went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. And I believed back then everything I believe about Jesus Christ right now, but I wasn't saved. Why not? I had not made a commitment to Jesus. When somebody says to me, well, I believe in Jesus, I like to ask them, well, what exactly do you mean when you say you believe in Jesus? Do you mean that you believe the facts about Jesus, that who he was and what he did? In other words, that he's the son of God, died for your sins, three days later he, uh, he rose from the dead and so on? Is that what you believe? Yeah. Good stuff. But the devil and his demons believe all that also. And they're not going to heaven. You've got to believe to the point of commitment to be saved. And that's different from just head knowledge. That's a hard commitment. And so again, guys, saving faith is only exercised once in a person's life. However, there is a faith that we do exercise every day of our lives once we are saved. It's the fourth kind of faith on the list, practical faith. Practical faith is something that's also referred to as sanctifying faith. Why? Because the more you exercise faith, the closer to God you get. And that's the very definition of sanctification. You're drawing away from the world and closer and closer to God. The word actually literally means to be set apart. Set apart from the world to be close to God. A classic verse on the subject of practical faith is found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. That's how important it is. It's the phrase, the just shall live by faith. Yeah, you're going to get saved by faith, but the just shall also then live by faith. And of course, saving faith opens the way for practical faith. You got to be saved before you can exercise practical faith because if you don't know Jesus then, you know, you don't have the relationship where you can come to God and say, "My Father who was in heaven, hallowed be your name," right? That implies relationship. But guys, saving faith is the faith of a moment which affects my eternity. Practical faith is moment by moment faith that affects my daily life. Practical faith is so important to our Christian life that the Holy Spirit devotes an entire chapter to the subject of practical faith. It's called Hebrews 11. Why don't you turn there? And while you're doing that, let me say Hebrews chapter 11 has been called by some the greatest chapter in the Bible. And they believe that because once we are saved by faith, we start on a journey with the Lord whereby we must learn to live by faith every day. So if we're talking practical terms, okay, yeah, I would say Hebrews 11 ranks right up there with the most important chapters in the New Testament for Christians and how they live their daily lives. Yes, okay. Hebrews chapter 11 starts out with the best definition of faith you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Let me read it to you out of the New King James. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen 
First of all, let me say this before we kind of pick this apart a little bit. Is the writer, and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, is Paul saying that whatever a Christian hopes for, I mean, whatever they want, if they believe strong enough, it will be theirs. Well, some teach that. It's all about your faith. If you can muster up enough faith, you can basically write your own ticket with God. That's what Hagen said. But that's absolutely untrue. We spent the first part of this study on joy of faith, refuting some of the false concepts of faith. Our faith will never put us in the driver's seat, making God our servant and us the master. We can't boss God around or command him around because I have a lot of faith in something. We uh, looked at 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. Everything we pray has to pass through the grid of God's sovereignty. And if it does, and it's something that God wants for your life, you'll have it. If it's something that God does not want for your life, for whatever reason, he won't give it to you. And all the faith in the world is not going to force him to do what you want him to do. And why would you want to do that? Think about it. If I could somehow control God into giving me what I want because I had enough faith, knowing his way and his will is perfect for my life, why would I want my will over his will? I mean, shouldn't we then pray like Jesus? I mean, shouldn't we pray like Jesus? Who laid out what he wanted to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It's okay to ask God for things, as long as they're not sinful. But say to him at the end, but Father, your will is best. I don't want my will. Ultimately, I want your will to be done. That's a good prayer. Now, let me just say this. God is a gracious God. We know that. And he will often give us things we ask for, even if he has not specifically promised those things to us in his word. So, you want to get one of your children a new bike, can't really afford the bike, and so you pray. Lord, would you provide this bike for my son or daughter? You want to take the family on a nice vacation. You've been through a lot as a family. You really need a vacation. You can't afford one, but you pray, Lord, would you please provide us the money to have a nice vacation? Or as I've told you different times in the past, one year, many, uh, one Christmas time, many years ago, we were broke. We had, I had no money to pay the bills, let alone buy the kids Christmas gifts. But I just said, Lord, I'm just asking you, would you provide the resources for us to give the kids a nice Christmas? And he did. And I didn't ask anybody for anything. That's the thing. If you're going to ask God in faith, then you leave it with him. I remember at the end of that month, looking back, not only did he pay all the bills, he gave the kids a great Christmas. And I forgot all the details, but he just... The money just came. We at, at, didn't ask anybody for anything. So God's gracious. There's a lot of things that God hasn't promised in his word. You know, you don't open the Bible and say, and I promise to give you wonderful vacations every year. Promise to give you wonderful Christmas gifts for your kids every year. 
And sometimes he'll do that because he's a very good, kind and loving God. But listen to me. Those things are not promised to us by God in his word, and therefore they are not a sure hope. Every time you study the Bible and you see the word hope, it's always a sure thing. It's not I hope so hope, it's I know so hope. Why? Because it's always connected to a promise of God. And if God makes you a promise in his word, it is an absolutely sure hope. You say, well, what, are, what things are a sure hope that God has promised us in his word? Most of them are eternal things. The main ones, the ones that affect our eternity are, he promises us forgiveness of sins and salvation if we come to Jesus by faith, confessing our sins and so on. He won't turn anybody away. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no way turn, turn away. He's promised us a heavenly inheritance someday. You're a child of God. As Peter tells us, you've got an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Absolutely incredible, undefiled, never fade away because you've been kept by the power of God through faith. How about eternal rewards and glory with the Lord? That's promised to us for living a life of faithful service to him. But also the, he's promised us as Christians an existence someday without pain, without sorrow, suffering, tears, hunger, thirst, sickness, or death. Those are promises from God. But furthermore, while we're still on the earth and we have put our faith in Jesus, he's promised to provide our physical needs. Sometimes our wants and desires, but always our physical needs. Why? Because he's our father and we're his children. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 11? You can look it up later. Luke 11, 11 through 13. He said, of you earthly fathers being evil. Now, all he meant was you have a fallen sin nature. If you earthly fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more do you think your heavenly father wants to give good gifts to his kids? And so, guys, these promises become our, excuse me, these promises become the focus of our faith and the certainty of our hope. And what, that what God has promised, he is able and willing to give to us. Now go back to Hebrews 11. I want to read verses 1 and 2. I want to look at this a little deeper. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. We're, we're trying to understand faith. Well, here it is right out of the word of God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. There are three words in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 that summarize what true Bible faith is in our lives. They are the word substance, evidence, and testimony. The first one is substance. The word translated substance is a Greek word that means support from beneath. In other words, think of a foundation. Faith is to our hope what a foundation is to our house. In other words, faith is what undergirds what we hope for. And what is it that we're hoping for? Well, we're hoping for one of the promises that God has given to us. We're hoping that he will do exactly what he's promised us he's going to do. But again, this is not a I 
hope so hope but i'm not sure no it's a i know so hope because god's promised me this it's the same greek word translated confidence in hebrews 3 verse 14 so we could translate this phrase faith is the confidence of things hoped for maybe one of your translations has translated that way the amplified bible translates that greek word assurance so faith is the assurance of things hoped for things that god has promised i want you to understand though the greek word that is translated assurance in the amplified and substance in the new king james could also be translated title deed or ownership in other words as a child of god biblical faith is believing that you already own what god has promised in his word even if you can't yet see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands think of god's promises like a piece of property that he deeds to you by putting your name on it you now own that promise and every child of god has been deeded every promise of god our names are on those promises phil this is what i promised you trust me it'll be a reality and you can fill in your name but you now own that promise even as god says in hebrews 11 verse 1 faith is the title deed of things hoped for however guys and this is essential don't miss this an essential part of receiving a promise from God, or in other words, true faith, must always be coupled with expectation and obedience. When God makes you a promise, you have to embrace it. You have to claim it as your own. It belongs to you. Your name's on it. And you expect God to come through. He's promised it to me. I've asked him to do it. What am I worried about? Right? But also obedience is an important thing. If you're living a disobedient life, that's going to hinder your relationship with God. That's going to really hinder your faith in God. That's going to cause the blessings of God to dry up. Look at uh, verse 7, Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, now he believed the promise of God that uh, judgment was coming. And so he moved with godly fear and prepared an ark. And in so doing, he saved his entire family. Guys, look, I was telling first service. We want our unsaved family members saved, right? All of us do. But if we're living lives of hypocrisy, they're not going to take us seriously. They're not gonna, and this gets into the third word, but hang on to that. I can talk about Jesus all I want. But if I'm not living a godly life, if I'm talking about Jesus at work and among my family, and then they know I'm out doing things or living in such a way as I'm not really living for God, I don't really live what I claim to believe, all the presentation of the gospel will be for nothing. Obedience is important. That we believe what God has promised, we expect it to be a reality in our lives, and we live for him in such a way that we're honoring him and obeying whatever he's told us to do. The second word is evidence. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence means conviction or proof. The Greek word is a legal term, meaning evidence that is accepted for a conviction in a court of law. 
A prosecuting attorney takes evidence into court to prove his case. And if it's a criminal trial, to get a conviction. In other words, to bring the jury to a decision based on the evidence. Let me say this. Biblical faith isn't a blind leap into the darkness as some people feel it is. A lot of unbelievers think, you know, well, we, we believe in science. You Christians, all you got is faith. And what they usually attach that to is evolution is science, therefore it's fact. And creationism is a faith, and therefore it's foolishness. I hope the last couple of Wednesday nights we've blown that out of the water. Come back this Wednesday for part three of that little three-part series. But our faith, as Luke said in Acts 1 verse 3, is built on many infallible proofs. Now, he connected that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's absolutely right. I have heard more than a few stories of um, law professors teaching at some of the greatest schools in the United States teaching law, and uh, we're not believers, atheists, some of them. When some of their Christian students challenge them to take the rules regarding the gathering of evidence to use in a court of law, use it to gather evidence with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as they did, as they applied the same standards of collecting evidence, looking at where it was pointing and the conclusions they had to come to based on the evidence, they all got saved and wrote books. The evidence that demands a verdict, or that's Josh McDowell, he's not an attorney, but um, there are others that come to mind. I've mentioned them around Easter time. But here's the thing. When it comes to the evidence with regard to the resurrection, Jesus already rose 2,000 years ago from the dead. How do we apply this to our lives today with regard to God's promises when we have not yet seen God work in our lives, fulfilling a promise he made to us? I mean, how are we going to have this, this, this conviction, this proof that it's going to happen? Well, there's two things. One is we trust the character of our God. The Bible said that God, it's impossible for God to lie. So if God tells us something, we never have to worry, is God being honest with me? I mean, today, with all kinds of, I mean, truth has fallen on hard times in our society today. Everyone's a liar, especially our politicians. You can't trust anything they tell you. Unfortunately, it's worked its way out into the culture in general. But when it comes to God, we always know what God has promised. It's impossible for him to lie. He's trustworthy. And then you have, like with David, in the Psalms, how David was on the run for his life for 10 years. And often the armies of Saul were closing in. And David would write the Psalms, I lay on my bed thinking about the days of old, how you always came through for me in olden times or in the past. Whenever I was in trouble, when that lion came out of the woods to attack the sheep, you gave me grace and strength to kill the lion. When a bear came out of the woods, you gave me grace and strength to kill the bear. Then I went up against Goliath as a young man. You gave me grace and strength to bring down Goliath. 
And now the armies of Saul are knocking at my door practically. Lord, you've always been faithful in the past. You've always protected and watched over me in the past. There's no reason for me to doubt now that you're not going to do that today in whatever experience I'm going through. You know, for a long time when we first got into ministry, we didn't have two nickels rubbed together. And that's fine. I wasn't in ministry for the money. But it forced us to trust God to provide everything. And every time God provided, it built my faith for the next time. And the next time after that. That's what we're talking about. And of course, that all brings us to that third word. That tells us what biblical faith really is. Three words, substance, evidence, and number th three, testimony. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders, the patriarchs of Israel, in the olden times, Old Testament period, for by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. You know what that Greek word is there? It's martyres. It's the Greek word we get the word martyr from. But the Greek word literally means a witness. Giving a testimony is in a court of law. Back then, when Christians witnessed for Jesus, they gave a testimony, they often were arrested and killed for their faith. That's why the word martyres, a witness, was associated eventually with being a martyr. What is being said here? Faith is the substance the assurance, the title deed of things hoped for, right? The evidence, the proof that God's going to work, yet we don't see it yet. And in this regard, those who have walked by faith had a good testimony. Look, your faith is not for you alone. God wants to use it to put it on display to be a testimony to his faithfulness to everybody who sees you in the hopes that some will get saved or Christians will be strengthened in their faith. But when we walk by faith and God works in our lives and people can see God work and know we're Christians and trusting him, that is an incredible testimony. Again, why do you think God allows us to go through certain trials and things? Because he likes to hurt us? No, because he wants to use us. He wants to grow us as we put our faith in him, that he can lift us up and show everybody else see this person here they trusted me i made them a promise and they trusted me and here's how i fulfilled it any one of you who has put your faith in my son can claim the promises i've given to you some of you don't because you're afraid you don't believe really or whatever but when you put your faith in me and trust me to do what I promise I'm going to do, and it happens, that allows me to put your faith on display. This is a very important point, guys, a very important point that we sometimes don't realize. But when Paul is talking about keeping our eyes on God in difficult times, and the Christians that, were, that Paul was writing to, the Hebrews, they were Jewish believers, and they were going through incredible times of persecution at the hands of the Roman government and their own Jewish countrymen who were not Christian. And so Paul is wanting to, you know, and he, and he understood that 
our faith is strengthened through the testimonies of others that God has worked in their lives. And that's why he spends a big chunk of Hebrews 11 talking about the various testimonies of people that in the Old Testament that trusted God and God worked a miracle or worked in some very powerful way in their lives. They just kept their eyes on God's promises. Most of those promises, though, were eternal promises. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. When we talk about faith that will get us through various difficult times, adversities, and so on, I will tell you that most of the time in the New Testament, it's talking about keeping our eyes on eternity. Let me read you out of 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see are going to last forever. This world is rapidly passing away. But Jesus is coming. To establish a new world order. The kingdom age. Look as important as this kind of faith is. In our daily lives. Especially when we're going through difficult times. It's easier said than done isn't it? It's, it's easy for me to tell you now have faith. Come on. Buck up. Yeah easier for you to say. But one of the things that always encourages, has encouraged me. Is the testimony of other believers. That's why I love biography so much. And that's why our quarter, book of the quarter is going to be 50 short biographies. They're going to bolster your faith. As you see what God did in their lives, it's going to strengthen your faith for your life. Paul knew this also. Again, that's why he uses most of chapter 11 to present a series of testimonies from the Old Testament, Old Testament saints and how they listen trusted God's promises, lived by faith, kept their eyes on the eternal, and became, became examples to the rest of us, encouraging our hearts in living our lives for God by faith. Let me just sum up this final message in this little trilogy called The Joy of Faith, and then we'll bring it to a close. First of all, let me say this. The greatest joy of faith is knowing that no matter how bad a life you've lived, if you will come to Jesus Christ by faith, he will accept you, he will save you, he will cleanse you, and give you a brand new life. I don't care how bad a life you've lived. The Bible said where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me for salvation, I will never turn them away. And so that's a very important thing. For, that's a great joy to know. I'm not so bad that God won't love me or save me if I ask him to. Romans 10, verses 11 to 13. Paul said, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him, on Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. And of course, you all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to perish in hell but would have everlasting life with God in heaven. However, guys, our joy as Christians doesn't end there. It's with our salvation. It continues as we live by faith every day in the promises of God. Even if, listen, we have no idea how God's going to fulfill that promise. Now, the, the supreme example of this is Abraham. And if you would, turn to Romans 4. Because in Romans 4, Paul lifts up Abraham as an example of somebody who believed an incredible promise God gave him. A promise that went way beyond his human abilities. Impossible. In Romans 4, starting with verse 17. Again, I'll read these out of the NLT. comes through a little clearer. Romans 4.17, that is what the scriptures mean when God told him, told Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in, in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. To God, nothing is not even impossible. Nothing is hard. Verse 18, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. At that point, he had no kids. Okay. Verse 19, and Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. Sarah was 90. Her womb was as good as dead. Verse 20, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God is able, excuse me, he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Don't ever forget that. And God held up Abraham as somebody was absolutely impossible for him to have kids at 100. But that's when he had Isaac. I say him. I mean Sarah. She did the work. He took the credit. But okay. <laughs> but how about us? How about us as we... Race to the finish line today. Um, turn to Matthew 6. We're talking still about the practical faith. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, starting with verse 25. He said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he, uh, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously, and he will give you everything you need to live your life here on the earth. Amen. Even as Paul said in Philippians 4.19, 
And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Guys, the joy of faith is knowing that you belong to God. That he is watching over you and he's promised to take care of you. Knows everything you need. You don't have to tell him. He knows what you have need of, physically speaking. And he's promised he's going to take care of those needs. But he says to us, look, I'll take care of the physical. I know you need food and shelter and clothes. I know that. I'll take care of that. Just don't live at the level of the physical. That's unbelievers do that. But you live at the level of the spirit and, 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 and commit yourself to the work of the kingdom. And then everything else you need, I'll take care of. Look, we're done. Well, let me just say this. The Bible says when God makes a promise, it is as good as done. Why is it as good as done? For two reasons. First of all, as we said, it's impossible for God to lie. Number two, what he has promised, he is able to perform because nothing is impossible for him. When we talk about the joy of faith, can you remember a time in your life before you had faith? You might have thought you had faith because I grew up as a Catholic. I thought I had faith. I'm talking about before you really knew Jesus. You remember some of those times when your back was against the wall, you were facing some incredible obstacle or, or circumstance or problem. Nobody could help you or wanted to help you. So you were on your own. You tried your best to work things out, but like Abraham with Hagar, sometimes you dug yourself deeper. And then you received Jesus. And he came inside of you and established this incredible relationship with you where now he was in control. It was his responsibility to provide your needs, to take care of you. Remember how wonderful that was? What joy it brought? The joy of knowing Jesus. The joy of having faith that he's in control. He's going to take care of everything. Sometimes we forget that joy, don't we, as Christians? We don't stay as close to Jesus as we should. We kind of drift a little bit. And that, when that happens, we start getting our eyes on our circumstances. Our faith starts to waver. Our joy is gone. Worry sets in. Do you know that's a slap in the face of our God who has promised you, I love you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You bring all your cares to me. In fact, Peter says, you cast your anxieties upon me. I care about you. I'll take care of it. We forget that, don't we? And all of a sudden, we're trying in the, our own strength to make things work out. Don't do that. Don't do that. Trust God. And you know what? True faith says, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you're gonna, you've promised me. So I'm going to praise you and thank you right now for what's coming. That's, that's biblical faith, by the way. Anybody can praise God when they, they see the thing right in front of them. Unbelievers can, you know, praise God when they have what they want right in front of them. But it really honors God when we praise him and thank him for what he's promised, and yet we don't see it yet. In fact, there's something about that, and I'll close with this. There's something about reaching out to touch God by faith in a promise he's given to you and you
praise him and thank him with absolute confidence. It's going to happen because my God doesn't lie and he's able. There's something about reaching out to God with praise and thanksgiving. I, I, I don't want to say seals the deal. That's too worldly. How about establishes a connection with God that allows his power to flow into my life? Remember the woman with the issue of blood? Here's Jesus walking through a crowd of people. They're thronging him. They're pushing on him and they're bumping into him. One woman sneaks up behind him because she was scared and she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And all of a sudden, healing power went from Jesus into her. Jesus stopped and said, wait, who touched me? His disciples said, Lord, who hasn't touched you? Everybody's touching you. He said, no, no, this touch was different. This was a touch of faith. I felt Healing power, leave me. That's what faith does. And faith is true faith when you think and praise God before it ever happens. It makes that connection, guys. There is power in praise. I read a book years ago, The Power of Praise. He had some good points. There's something about praising and thanking God for a promise that you haven't seen the fulfillment of. But you are so confident in God that's going to happen, you just start singing his praises. That, that's, that's powerful. Uh, I wasn't going to do this, but I, I feel like I need to share a quick story. Well, I promised, was it the fifth, fifth, time, fifth time I've said we're going to close? All right. My pastor tells an incredible story, a true story, that happened to him and his wife. When they were first in ministry, they had, again, they had no money. And so Chuck was working at a, uh, uh, a supermarket, Alpha Beta Markets, and he had to be a member of the union to work there. So he joined the union. But then something came up. I don't know if it was uh, he had to do a funeral somewhere out of state or somebody, a cousin got married and he had to officiate. So he leaves town quickly and forgets to renew his union dues. And so his dues lapsed. And now he can't work because he's got to pay his dues first. But he can't pay his dues until he works. So now he's stuck in a, a catch-22. And of course, him and his wife were praying. And then one day, a couple called on the telephone. And they, they knew Chuck. They didn't know what he was going through, him and Kay. But they, they, knew, they, they knew Chuck and Kay. And they said, you know, um, I don't know. We just had a feeling that. Uh, we were to send you some money. Chuck said, I didn't want to ask, but, you know, how much are we talking about? <laughs> it was enough to cover everything. We'll send it right out. Put it in the mail today. Hung the phone up. Chuck grabbed Kay, and they were dancing around the kitchen. What's wrong, Chuck? What's going on? We just got word, you know, the couple that we, you know, knew, and they're going to send us money. They promised to write a check and send it out today. And he's dancing around the kitchen with his wife, and God spoke to him. And he said, God spoke to me very clearly. How do you know they're going to send the check? Yeah. Oh, Lord, I know these people. They're trustworthy. Are you, are you sure you can trust them? Because maybe they won't send the check. Oh, Lord, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I know this family. They would never do that. Huh. Before they called, I made you a promise that I was going to take care of all your needs. I didn't see you grabbing your wife and dancing around the kitchen then. <laughs> Why is it that we put more faith in men 
than we do in our God. Forgive us, Lord. So wrong. You'll never know the joy of faith if you look to human beings to satisfy your needs. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And all the great and precious promises you've given to us, Lord. Give us the grace to be like little children in our faith. That we don't doubt, we don't worry. What you've promised you're going to perform, it's as good as done. Give us grace to start dancing around with each other there in the kitchen or our living room. As we read one of your promises and we just take it to the bank and we just rejoice in knowing. It's going to happen. We don't know how. We don't know when. But you've promised us you're going to take care of this. And we thank you, Lord. And we, Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.